um, Ted's stepmom, his wife, and the loneliness that he has. And pray for Kara as she makes some pretty significant life changes during this time. Pray for Chris and Heather's friend who just got married. Um, and they moved the wedding up early because her, her mom has terminal cancer. Um, pray for the students at Camp Halawasa um, this week. Pray for the students who just finished camp, that God will be doing a permanent work in them, uh, not just a camp high. Uh, and then Heather might have the opportunity to walk someone into faith in Christ. So would you pray for Heather? Um, Axel is praying for his landlord, Sheila Hillberry. Um, she has cancer that has just come back, and she is a saint in this community, and so we want this away so that she can continue serving the way that she can. And then Josh uh, has been really trying to help his brother in recent years, um, but it doesn't seem like his brother is open to hearing that. And so would you pray for someone to come into his brother Nathan's life um, to be able to explain to him who Jesus is, to be able to walk with him through the things that he's dealing with. And then would you pray for Andy's friend, for her congenital vascular disease that she has, for her dad. Uh, pray for Micah, who's sick. Um, and then pray for the Kelly family, especially for Naomi, who right now they're living in Japan, um, one of the least Christian nations in the world, and it's a difficult place in which to live. And so we're just praying for their family, or maybe there's another missionary family that you know. Uh, but these are the things that we're now going to approach the Lord for. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then you're dismissed to just gather together um, with a few around you. And would you please um, just plead with God on behalf of these things. Um, so Father God. We just declare that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And there's so many around us who don't know you, and God, it's our desire to play a role in that. And so we just thank you for the people in here who are planting seeds. We just thank you for the people who are doing their part. Um, but yet we hold the results of all the work that we're doing loosely. We hold our health loosely. We hold all of these things loose because we can't control them. But God, we know that you are the God who is in control. And so we just ask that you would take control in many of these circumstances, that you would heal bodies that need to be healed, that you would soften up soil that needs to be softened in order for the gospel seed to grow and to take root and would you just empower us um, to be a people who are active on mission for you and so god now as we turn to you in prayer we just come with that posture of knowing that you are in control but yet you've invited us to come to you with these requests so we just thank you for that we want to take advantage of this access that we have and so it's in Jesus' name that we pray amen
So, Father God, we thank you for hearing our voices as you are the one who turns your ear to us. We just praise you for that. And, God, as we have prayed now, um, you've declared in your word that, that the sheep know the shepherd's voice. And we want to be a people who know your voice. We want to be a people in tune to you speaking, in tune to you bringing up these prayer requests um, all week. And so, God, would you just remind us, um, even now, uh, as you have led and directed us in this place um, to pray over what it is, uh, would you be continually speaking? Would you be continually reminding us of those things? this week, that we would be a people with ears in tune with you, um, hearing what it is that you are leading us to. And so, God, I just pray for Common Ground Church as as we have not only come before you, but every time we come before you, God, we just continue to, to fall in love with you. We continue to see your goodness. We continue to know how to approach you. And I just pray that you would be teaching and shaping us right now to be the sheep who know your voice. Now, this week, as we leave this place, that we would be a people who hear you amidst all the other noise. Um, and would you give us the courage and the strength to follow through with what it is that you are encouraging us to do, with what it is that you're commanding us to do. And so, God, I just thank you for this church. Thank you for these people who are close to you. And would you use them in mighty ways? Would you use them in mighty ways to be your agents in this world, as you have given all authority in heaven and on earth to them, to these people? Would you remind them of that? Would you just pour out a fresh, fresh anointing on us to do your work? As we have our hands open to you. So Jesus, as we turn to your word now, uh, we open our ears to you, wanting to hear, wanting to know how is it that you're instructing us to live as Christ followers in this world? So would you speak? Would you help us to be a people willing to listen? So Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, you guys. Thank you for continuing um, to be a people committed to prayer, for being a people who are authentic in sharing some of these requests. I just have to commend you for that. And as you make your way um, back to your seat, I will remind us that we are entering into the last little section in our summer series that we have called Dear Friends and Fellow Workers, where we have been going through three different books or three different letters, epistles in the New Testament, um, that were written to churches to help them to be faithful to what it is that God has called them to do. Uh, Letters that are written to some really difficult, intense situations in churches that we can actually look to now and see how it is that we are to frame our lives, that we are to frame our relationships to one another as we are to frame our discipleship of following Jesus in this life. We have a lot that we can learn from the three books of Philemon, Titus, and Jude that we've been working through. And and it was way back in May that we went through the book of Philemon. If you missed that, we've got all the talks on the website there. But Philemon is this really intense, funny little book that we went through where the Apostle Paul had met with a runaway slave, a guy named Onesimus, um, who ran away from his owner and made his way to the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul said, hey, you're going to go back. And you're going back actually with a letter. And in that letter, he was telling Philemon, the owner of Onesimus, that you're going to receive Onesimus back. 
no punishment. You're going to receive him as a brother. And then Paul says, actually better than that, you're going to receive him like you would receive the Apostle Paul himself. And let me remind you that you owe me your entire life. And it's this intense letter um, where it shows just how the gospel changes our relationships, changes our community. Um, And then we went through the book of Titus, which is a little longer. It's still a very short little book. Um, But the Apostle Paul was writing to this young pastor named Titus who was planting and, and building up churches on the island of Crete. And kind of the reputation of Crete was that the people were just scummy. They're just terrible. And it's like, what on earth do we do to build churches around these people? And Paul essentially just said, well, they just need to be saved. They just need to encounter God's grace. Um, And over and over in the book of Titus, Paul just outlines the gospel. He just outlines what it is to be saved. And then he gives a lot of just practical advice. And as we worked our way through Titus, we looked at a lot of practical stuff, like how to be leaders in church, how to combat heresy, false ideas, um, how the church is to relate to government and to authority, and just all of these different outlines and concentrates of the gospel, of the work of Christ. Um, and now we're entering another tiny little book. We are going to enter the letter of Jude today, and we're going to spend a few weeks in it, but we've kind of bookended Jude and Philemon on either end of this series because they're these short little intense letters. Um, And Jude maybe isn't one that you've read all too often, but I really do think it's one of the most exciting books in the entire Bible. It's not often preached on Sundays, um, and I think part of the reason is because it is so short. Um, But often I think one of the reasons that it's often avoided is because we can tend to maybe want to go after sermons or listen to talks that are really encouraging and upbeat and, you know, tell us how good we are and and help us to feel better to get through our day and to get through our weeks. And oftentimes that's what Christians are looking for is just, you know, a good encouraging sermon so that we can take on our week. And I will just warn you from the outset, Jude is not that. Um, Jude is not going to be like, oh, yay, this is motivational. Um, Jude uses a lot of what I would call inflammatory language. Um, And it is essentially a full-scale attack on false teachers. Uh, He's not messing around. Jude is going to be writing to the adults in the room, all right? Uh, And some of it is going to be maybe hard to listen to. Some of it is going to make us squirm and a little uncomfortable. And I would give you full permission to say, you can be uncomfortable. You don't have to like it. But this is in our Bibles, and so we do have to respect it. We have to know it. That this is from the brother of Jesus, that this is part of our Bible. And so it's going to make us squirm. It's going to make us a little uncomfortable. It's going to make us think like, man, I'm glad, you know, we're not in a situation that bad. Um, It's very judgmental, very intense. But yet, this is essentially what we're being shown. This is what sin deserves. This is what this false teaching deserves. This is how serious of a problem the thing that Jude was facing is. And this is just how important it is to fight for our faith and to fight for our church. This is how defensive God is over his people, essentially. And so, because it's so short... We're going to read an entire book today in church, you guys. We're going to be able to get through the entire thing. Jude is kind of a hard book to find, but it's the second to the last book in the entire Bible, right before Revelation. just takes up one page, depending on your font size, Um, but it's super short. So we're going to start from verse 1, and as we just introduce it this morning, I'm just going to kind of introduce the main theme, the main purpose of this book, and then the next few weeks, we're going to get into some of the nitty-gritty there of Jude and what exactly... 
is the brother of Jesus getting to here, and what do we have to learn from it? And so, if you'll follow along uh, with me in your Bible or on the screen, we're going to go through the book of Jude, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to look at what exactly is taking place here in this short little letter. So, beginning in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. That was very sweet. He says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once entrusted to all of God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord, of our God, into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on that great day. And in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And in the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they don't understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. You guys know those stories, right? Easy, peasy. Again, we'll go through them later. Um, But he says that these people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. They are autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. They are wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and convict all of them, all of the ungodly acts that they have committed in their ungodliness, and all of the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers, fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and they flatter others for their own advantage. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you that in the last times there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. And these are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority, through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. 
Amen. Well, this is God's holy word. That's the book of Jude. That's the whole thing there. And as you see, there's some rough language in there. And there are some stories. He just cites things and expects you to know, like, oh, yeah, Enoch, this is what he talked about. And you're like, wait, we got to read these other books. we got to know these things. We'll get to it. We'll get into the nitty-gritty later. Um, but what I want to do today is just kind of paint the picture of the book of Jude. Help us to understand, really, the context of what is happening. Why did Jesus' brother write such a bad Yelp review here on this church? Like, what is going on? Um, and the first thing that you need to know about this book is, obviously, that it was written by Jude. Um, this guy named Jude, or actually Jude is the English translation of the name Judas. His name is technically Judas, not Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus, but there are a few different Judases. Um, but we know that he's the brother of Jesus uh, because in Matthew chapter 13, um, Jesus had just been teaching and performing miracles. And the people are wondering, like, wait, we, we saw this guy when he was a kid. And he said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked isn't this, speaking about Jesus, the carpenter's son, isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Or Jude? They're like, wait, we know his family. And this is who Jude is. He's the little brother of Jesus here. In historical accounts, um, they tell about how James and Jude, who James wrote another book in the New Testament as well, um, but they didn't actually believe in Jesus while he was walking the earth. Most of the time. Um, it wasn't until the resurrection and they saw Jesus raised from the dead that we find in the book of Acts. All of a sudden, these guys seem to be followers. And Josh, I think we talked about that. How It's like, yeah, you know, the relationship between brothers doesn't exactly open you up to belief. But because of the miracle of Jesus' resurrection, eventually Jude and James believed. And we have historical accounts outside the Bible that talk about Jude being this kind of traveling evangelist for the rest of his life, that he traveled around Syria and Israel and Lebanon and Egypt preaching the gospel after the resurrection. And it's actually the oldest copies of this letter, the letter of Jude that we have, that were found in Egypt. And so we assume he spent a lot of time there because it was early, early on that people had this letter from Jude and they were hanging onto it. And so this, this is who wrote it here. The brother of Jesus. Um, but it's kind of interesting, if you notice at the beginning of the book, just how he identified himself, right? He didn't identify himself by saying, you know, yeah, I'm Jesus' brother. Look at me. I'm a big deal. Instead, he says that the first thing he wants you to know about him is that he's a servant of Jesus Christ, right? He says, I'm his servant. And he uses a really specific word there for servant. It's not the same word like slave that we get from the book of Philemon, but it's this word doulos, which... You know, we can't think of like American slavery and the brutality of that, but this is like someone who signed up to willingly be a servant. They liked their boss, and so they said, hey, I'm going to work for you forever, and they basically signed a lifetime contract. And that's what Jude is saying. He said, when it comes to Jesus, I sign my life over to him. My life is all about serving him. And I think it's interesting to wonder, like, why he didn't identify himself as the brother of Jesus instead. But he's saying, no, no, no. The most important thing about me isn't actually that physical relationship. It's not that authority that I might have because of that relationship, but it's actually the subordination I have to Jesus. Um, I am his servant. I'm a servant. And he's saying, this is who I am. And I think just right off the bat, this is a good reminder for us. Uh, whatever position we might have, if we're the lead pastor, discipleship director, worship leader, if we are the Archbishop of Canterbury, everything takes center, I mean, second place to us being a servant of Jesus. And putting ourselves under the authority of Jesus 
is what everybody, no matter what position you have, must be doing. And you're going to see as we get into this letter that that's actually one of the core issues that Jude is talking about, is unwillingness to put yourself under the authority of Jesus, that there were people putting themselves above him. And so I think it's because of that key issue that this is why Jude identified himself as a servant, because he's saying, hey, he's going to get to how these people weren't, and he's making sure to lead by example to say, Regardless of who I am, I'm underneath Jesus. I'm his servant. And it's in verse 3 um, that we actually get the reason for this letter. We get the entire reason um, where Jude said that I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, right? But I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered for all saints. And so what Judah is saying is that I wanted this to be a nice letter. I wanted to just write to you about Jesus. I wanted to just write to you about the gospel. And like last week, as we went through Titus chapter 3, we got to have just a gospel talk. And we got to see just the beauty of the gospel. And it's great. And it's positive, And we all love that. But obviously, in the middle of writing, when Judah's going to talk about that, the Holy Spirit gripped him and he said, Hey, people, these people need to hear the gospel, of course. That's good. But there is a more urgent need here that I want you to address. And so instead of talking about the content of their faith, Jude then has to switch, and he's going to talk about the context of their faith. Instead of talking about Jesus here, he is going to change the subject, and he's going to say, hey, I wanted to just remind us, isn't it cool how, how we're saved? Isn't it cool what Jesus did? But instead, he changes the subject, and he says, well... The Holy Spirit reminded me that there are issues. There are people trying to snatch this away from you. There are these issues that I need to write to you about. Because while it's important for you to hear the gospel, you have a lot of pressure on you telling you it's not. You have a lot of pressure on you telling you that you don't need Jesus. And so this is what Jude writes about. And this is why he wrote this very intense letter. Essentially, he's reminding us and he was reminding them that church, our faith, following Jesus doesn't take place in a bubble. Um, it doesn't take place in this isolated little area where we'll never have any pressure on us about what we believe. Um, but that we live in a world where our faith is tested. That we live in a world where the pressures from outside actually try to encroach in and challenge what we believe. And so this is what he's writing to. This is what he's writing to. This issue that this little church, we don't know who they are or where they were, but they seem to be dealing with issues of these outside pressures coming on them. And so instead of addressing the gospel here, he had to address the context of where they're following Jesus. Um, and I think we can relate to this a lot. I think we can relate because we recognize that a lot of our friends, a lot of our family, a lot of our coworkers, they don't share the same faith that we have. Right, um, and we look to these people. We respect them. We love them. And in many cases, they are like good people by most standards that you would look to. And I know that often we can be tempted to question, like, well, if they don't have Jesus and they seem to be doing all right, like, what difference um, does it make? And this pressure might show up in a lot of different ways in our lives. The pressure might show up in our conversations. It might show up online. All of these different pressures that come on us to tell us that. We don't actually need Jesus. We don't actually need faith. The message, maybe for some of us, that has been really pushing down on us, that's been hard pressure to push against, is just the idea that, you know, the material universe doesn't need a God. You know, everything is just matter plus time plus chance. And we don't need a God to explain that. That's fine. 
Or maybe some of us have been really pushed down on by the ideas of like radical self-expression and just inclusion of every worldview and everything that anybody wants to do and that any faith, any belief system, any worldview that would put guardrails on what people want to do is evil. And this is a message in our culture today. Or maybe we face the different pressures of the existential questions we have. Why are bad things happening? Why is my life worse now that I'm following Jesus? Why this? Why that? And we don't feel like we're getting the adequate answers from Jesus. Right? In the pressure of all this, we can be tempted to think, uh, is my faith actually worth it? Is it actually doing anything? Can our faith survive the day-to-day? Can our faith survive all these attacks? And I think Jude hears this, and he's not just going to give kind of a pat answer of just, oh, just remember Jesus, you'll get through this. Instead, he's saying, no, let me remind you that amidst all these pressures, this is actually where faith is refined, and this is actually where we get to step up to the plate. And he says, this is where we contend for the faith. Um, And this is essentially the main message of the book of Jude, this letter, is that we're called to contend for the faith, to fight for the faith. And this is the central message of why he's writing to this, why he's talking about this, saying that we need to contend. And this word that he uses, contend, um, can often say in different versions, to fight for. Um, It's often used in literature around the same time period for boxing matches or wrestling matches. It's to fight, to exert intense offensive effort. It's essentially giving it your all. Uh, Knowing that this match is going to be like nine or ten rounds. This isn't just like a, hey, do this thing one time and then you're going to be coasting. Uh, But what Jude is reminding these people and reminding us of is that this faith that we've inherited is going to have pressure on it. And we must fight for it. We must contend for it. We must contend for it. That we can't just press autopilot and coast through life. That there is essentially a tide in the world in which we live in that is not going in the direction of Jesus. And so this is going to take our all. And one of the main messages that he has, one of the reasons that we need to contend is because he says, essentially, there are other contenders, right? There are other contenders who want to shape our view, who want to shape our identity, who want to shape our lives. And we have to be aware of that in order to make sure that they are not doing this, that we have to contend in this place. That the way that we view ourselves, the way that we view others, the way that we view Jesus and church is contended for. And it's pretty important to recognize that he mentions that what is being contended for is not just like our personal confidence in Jesus, um, but he says that it's the faith that was once delivered. He said that there is like this historic faith that's unchanging in who Jesus is. Um, And just from the outset, this is a really important thing for us to understand that there was this set belief in who Jesus is and what he had done that was passed down from the disciples to the next generations. Um, And oftentimes we'll hear from like some silly YouTube videos out there that Christianity wasn't really like, you know, written down. It wasn't really a solidified worldview until like the 700s or that, you know, Christianity didn't teach certain things until like 1890. And the reality is we have a lot of evidence to the contrary, but especially just the fact that Jude is mentioning that there is the faith that was passed down, that there is the set of beliefs that even way back when Jude wrote this, which most say it was between like 60, 65 AD, that even at that point, just a few decades after Jesus died, there was a set belief. It's like Christians were like, hey, this is what Jesus taught. We have it figured out. This is what we hold to. This is what we hold to. 
And this seems obvious, but one of the things that we face the pressure of in our day and age is people on TikTok and YouTube who will post these different things and say that this isn't true, right? That these different ideas just get added to Christianity all the time. But we see way back in the book of Jude that there was a set belief already that was just needing to be fought for, needing to be contended for. And so that's what Jude is saying here. We have to fight for this. Have to fight for this. And this first reason that we see, um, this kind of gets into essentially the context of what is happening in the book. And that is that there are other contenders for the faith. Because as he says, certain people have crept in unnoticed. And he says that what they're doing is that they're perverting the grace of our Lord. And the ESV here says they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord. And this seems like kind of an ominous message, doesn't it? This is like kind of scary. I mean, it's one thing that, you know, we want to be a welcoming people and we want to be inviting people in who don't necessarily share all of our beliefs. Um, and then we can get to some of those questions of, is Jesus who he says he is? And we're all at these different parts of our faith journey. But then this comes in and it's like kind of the scary alarm. Like Jude is like sounding this alarm. Um, but what he's saying here is I don't think to be paranoid and just slam the doors and be checking everybody at the door. But what he's saying is that those pressures are not just outside in the world, that those pressures are close to home. Those pressures can be in our midst. That those pressures, if we are not careful, could come from us, essentially, right? And oftentimes we know this, that the pressures and the contenders for our faith are often those who claim to be Christians, right? It's those podcasts that claim to be Bible scholars, and then they seem to teach things that were never taught before. Or those weird little things where it's like, okay, yeah, we're Christian, but we also do this thing. And you're like, oh, that seems different than any other Christians I've ever heard of. And what Jude is saying here is that there are contenders trying to shape your view of who Jesus is and who you are. And so this is one of the reasons that we're in a fight here. And essentially what they were doing, he paints it out there, is that they were giving license for immorality here. They were twisting the grace, perverting the grace of God into sensuality. And so what was going on is people heard about forgiveness. They heard about the love of God. They heard about grace. Hey, Jesus died for you for your sins to forgive you. And God is love. He won't hate you for doing anything. So who cares what you do? And essentially, they were saying, why bother with morals, with ethics? Why bother with holiness? Why bother actually following some of the teachings that Jesus said? Because he'll just love us in the end, right? He's too loving. And this was the issue that they were facing. And especially when it came to the issue of sexuality here. As they were saying, well, what does it matter? God is so loving that we don't have to worry about that. And I don't know about you, but I, for one, am really glad that, you know, we follow a celibate Jewish rabbi, and we live in a culture that essentially has the exact same sexual ethics as a celibate Jewish rabbi, don't we? You know, it's like one for one, right? Nobody disagrees with what Jesus taught on sex, right? You know, that's, we're laughing, right? Hopefully you know that I'm like joking. Hopefully you've spoken to people in your life, and you know that that's not the case, that we follow Jesus, who had a very, very conservative Jewish take on human sexuality. Um, and yet, 
Most of the time, uh, people don't. And this isn't a new problem. Um, this isn't a new problem for us today. Uh, I know oftentimes we like to think, like, man, people have just gotten worse and worse and worse. Um, but this wasn't new. Um, this is just who people are. I don't think we're necessarily uniquely bad <laughs> today. That this was actually something that Jude was dealing with at this time. And this is the issue of people saying, like, hey, grace, grace covers all this, right? Um, but Jude is having to teach actually what grace means. Actually, what grace means, that grace not only forgives us and justifies us, but it actually changes us and motivates us to look like him. It's not just license to do what we want. It's power to do what he wants, right? To be a servant of Jesus. Because remember, that's who Jude identified himself as. He says, I'm a servant of Jesus. That's what he thinks we should all be in this case. And so Jude says that in doing this, in perverting grace in this way, they're denying our master and our Lord, Jesus Christ. And I think he's being really intentional about describing Jesus in that way, right? Master and Lord. Because by these people's estimation, these false teachers, Jesus didn't seem to be their master or their Lord, right? He was their savior, but not their master, not their Lord. Like, thank you for your grace. Now I'll let you know when I need help kind of thing is what they were doing. Um, and they seem to not define themselves by anything that Jesus taught. Define themselves by salvation, great. We're thankful for that. Uh, but then there was no motivation to actually let Jesus rule over their lives. And so because of that, Jude calls them ungodly. Um, and this is like his favorite word here. Uh, he says in this book like seven or eight times, ungodly or godlessness. Um, and godlessness for Jude, as we continue to go through this, um, it's essentially using God's grace or using theological doctrines for your own purposes. Right? And I think this is helpful for us to see that godlessness is not just like atheism or disbelief in God. That what godlessness for Jude is, is people who say, yeah, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I'm thankful for him. But then twist God for their own purposes. Not looking like God. And so it's like, yeah, thanks, God. You're great. But then taking what God has given and using it for their own gain, right? And in this case, they were giving license giving license for doing whatever they wanted to do. And so what we have to see in that is just a picture of how important it is to be in submission to God, right? That God's grace was given to, to change us, to shape us. And so this godlessness, we can often feel like maybe won't be an issue for us, but I think we have to recognize it's pretty subtle, it's pretty complex, it can sneak into our thinking oftentimes, because I don't think any of us would identify as godless. We go to church on a beautiful Sunday when we could be out of the park, and yet we're here, so we're not godless. But I think we do have to be aware and, and have our eyes open to the reality that we could kind of passively become ungodly in a lot of ways. Right? Maybe not actively, we're not like full-on denying, but kind of like in this case, uh, we might have pressure to be like, you know, I'll give Jesus my Sunday. I might even give Jesus like a Wednesday every once in a while. Um, I'll give Jesus like a little bit of my money. But Jesus can't have this stuff over here in my life. You know, like, yeah, I'll go to like a few church events. Maybe I'll pray every once in a while. I'll give Jesus like the first hour of my morning. But I won't give Jesus authority over how I treat my coworkers or my ethics at work 
or how I treat those I'm mad at, or especially not my sexuality, because Jesus lived 2,000 years ago and sex wasn't even invented yet. So, like, what does he know about that? Um, and so Jesus, he can have authority over this stuff, but not this stuff. This is where I'm Lord, I know, I can figure out how to live my life in this way. Jesus doesn't actually need authority in that way. And we can often live like this, and I think this puts us very at risk of being what Jude would call ungodly here, godless. And it might not be like fully godless in the same sense, but we're kind of like mid-godless, or we're like mid-godly at that point. It's like we're like medium ungodly, and it's this passive way of sneakily, of this bad ideas creeping in. I think we have to be aware of what are the things that we are keeping to ourselves, that we're keeping rulership over, that we must hand over to God. Um, Because I think this posture can be really damaging. And I think this is what the other contenders are looking to get out of us, right? To not let grace be kind of a cheap band-aid that covers over the things that we feel bad about. Um, But to actually be a person who submits and identifies as a servant of God. As a servant of God. Um, And again, this isn't, I don't think Jude's point is to be like paranoid and to recognize that it's us versus them, that there's bad people out there. I think what he's reminding us of here is that our faith matters. Our faith matters because who we are in Christ is actually being fought over. And it matters because others around us are going to be swayed by these things too. But that's the first reason. The first reason that we need to contend, the first reason that we have to be aware of these things, the reason that Jude wrote, because there are other people competing to shape our view of Jesus and shape our view of who we are. And this is the second reason I think is really important to get to that Jude is making clear, is that our identity is one of the main reasons that we have to contend of what Jesus has done for us. Because I don't know if you noticed in his opening to this letter, he's going to have really harsh words, but he begins by just reminding this church of their identity. Where he began the very book by saying that you are called, you are beloved by the Father, and you are kept for Jesus. And Jude begins by just reminding the church of who they are, what they have to fight for, what they've been given. Don't just throw this out. And this first line of of who we are, where Jude says that we're called, right? That God is actually the one who takes initiative. um, That God is the one who calls people to himself, And he doesn't desire that anyone would remain ungodly. He's the one who calls out to us to be with him and to be under his rule. Because when you read through the Gospels, you've noticed over and over again that Jesus moved around calling people to follow him, right? Jesus didn't just wait back passively and say, you know, the good ones will follow me eventually. Or like the smart people will figure it out and they'll come over to me. It's like, no, Jesus went after people. He went after people and he called them. And he went after ungodly people, right? He went after tax collectors, sinners. He went after corrupt rulers. And they were the ungodly, but yet Jesus went, took initiative, and called them. And the reason that we believe is because at some point in our lives, he called to us. That the Holy Spirit broke through the noise, opened our ears, opened our eyes, and called us to follow him. And so God is the one who calls out, follow me. And we have to recognize that he came after us, contended for us through all the noise, and he called us to follow him. And this is who we are. We are people called by God. We are people who Jesus chose and said, follow me. This is something to contend for, to fight for. But he called us, 
not just for no reason, but he called us so that we could be in the family and that we could be beloved by the Father, as he starts out there in verse 1, that we would be loved by him. That those who respond to God's call with faith are brought into the family and they're loved. And sometimes it's, it's hard to just describe the love of God, and so I always just have to go to the Psalms. I think it's always a great place to look. Because in Psalm 103, it says that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And then in Psalm 63, it says, Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Right? This is the sort of love that God has called us into. He's brought us into. This is the kind of love that he's offered to us. But we have to recognize, and what Jude is reminding us, is that we live in a world that would deny that we have a God who loves us. We live in a world that is putting pressure on us to recognize, no, you don't actually have a loving family. That's your imagination. And this is something to contend for. This is something to fight for. This is something to be reminding one another of. So you've been called and you were loved by God. And then the last little piece of our identity that Jude reminds us of is that we're kept. He uses this word kept. And as amazing as the calling and the love of God are, I really think some of the emphasis in this entire book is on that line kept. That we're kept for Jesus, and some of your versions might even say kept by Jesus. Uh, Because when we respond to the calling of God, right, when it comes to the promise and the ultimate inheritance that we get, the inheritance we get is Jesus. And everything that is in his inheritance, we're told over and over in scriptures, we're co-heirs to that. We have all of that to look forward to. That he has raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. That we are heirs of that. But also, I think in the context of Jude especially, um, some of your Bibles might say kept by Jesus. And especially in the context of this fight, this contention, I think this makes really good sense. That when the pressures are pushing on us to, to redefine who Jesus is and to, and to make us question if we really have a God who loves us and who has called us, well, it's not just up to us to white-knuckle it into eternity, but we actually have Jesus keeping us, strengthening us, empowering us. In this life, that Jesus has contended for us. He fought for us on the cross, and He won. And now He's given us His Spirit to finish that work, to finish that work, that we are kept by Jesus. And I think in a world that says it's all up to you, you just need to figure out how to be more disciplined, you just need to make sure you mow the lawn, make your bed, and be really structured, you eat the right things, or else you're not going to believe in Jesus, I think we have to recognize no, no, no. It's not just on us. It's not just on us. We have his spirit helping us, keeping us. And so this, this is what we have to fight for. This is our identity. This is our identity. And there are those in the world putting pressure on us to release this. And Jude writes to this and says, absolutely not. I am writing so that you would give it your all. That you would give it your all. Because all of this is important. But then Jude ends the book by reminding us that in the end of the day, it's not just about us. But actually, there are others, especially in the context of church, there are others sitting next to us right now who might be seduced, swayed, convinced by these other contenders about these things. And so Jude ends his book and all these harsh warnings by shifting our focus from ourselves then onto those around us, making it clear that we don't just fight 
for us to keep our identity, but we also fight for others. We fight for our church. Because in verse 22, he says, to have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. And save others by snatching them out of the fire. And he says, to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And so Jude seems to say that there are essentially three different kinds of people. There are three different categories that you could put people in here. Um, there's the doubting, which are people that are just hesitating, right? They, they don't really know what to think. They're kind of waffling in their faith. And what Jude is saying is, have a meal with them. Have coffee with them. Know your faith well enough to be able to answer some of their questions, right? Like maybe they watched some silly TikTok videos and now they think they want to deconstruct and they want to do all these things and they don't know about Jesus anymore. Jude is saying, this is the time to get a hold of them. Like while they're wobbling in their faith, this is the time to come alongside them, to support them, to firm them up, right? Meet with them, try to hear their questions, try to hear what are the things that they're struggling with? What are the reasons that they're doubting? What are these pressures put on them? Because they need help in this fight, right? And I know it can be tempting to go after them in a really harsh way. And that's why I think Jude reminds us to have mercy on those who doubt. For my personality, the temptation is just to go after them and be like, I can't believe, like, you you believe this silly video? Like, you're swayed by this sixth grade philosophy? Like, why don't you just wear a shirt that says I'm a big dummy dum-dum as well? Like, how do you even believe that? What's wrong with you? And what Jude is reminding us is that is definitely not the play. Many of you know that. Sometimes I don't always know that, and so I have to be reminded that we're not going up to people and saying, like, what's the matter with you? How do you even believe that? You're smarter than this. It's like, no, they're looking, they're searching, they're trying to find answers, and we are to come alongside them as they're wobbling, as they're being swayed by all this pressure, and to firm them up, to strengthen them. That this is the time to grab them. It's just when they're doubting. Um, Because then there's this other category. Um, Those, essentially, he says, we have to save others by snatching them out of the fire. Um, That there are those who are kind of in the fire. Um, They are on the wrong path. They're headed towards real heresy. They have taken in and believed some bad ideas, or they have just been completely led astray. They are in error, and a full rescue operation needs to be done in their case. Um, We're not necessarily trying to, like, comfort them in that case. We need to, like a Coast Guard rescue swimmer, dive in, say, here, put this on. I'm getting you out of here. (laughs) This isn't time to hear your cries and to pat you on the back. This is like a scary case where we will have to dive in the fire. And there's no time for chit-chat. It's like we have to firmly get people out of some of these things. I'm dragging you out. And the reality is, if we're going to be people who contend, then we have to be a people who are willing to jump in the fire for one another, right? And these are hard conversations. I don't know if you've ever had these conversations with a friend who, let's just say spiritually, is in the fire. These are hard rescue operations to do. But if we were to have a full picture of how the Bible describes what our role in church is, the beauty of it and the challenges of it, some of our challenges are going to be snatching one another out of the fire and being willing to dive in there for one another. Then there's this last category, which is essentially, as Jude describes them, those to be feared, right? To others, show mercy with fear. Show mercy with fear, right? That they are the false teachers. They're not just swayed by some of these bad ideas. They have all of a sudden become the spokesman. Or they are just out there essentially contending for all the wrong things. And Jude says, you need to understand there's... 
Nobody's a lost cause. There's still a chance to win them over. There's still a chance for grace there. But you need to understand just how dangerous this is. You need to understand just how evil some of these ideas can be. And we need to exercise great care um, with going out and showing mercy to these people. Again, he says mercy. Right? We're hard on ideas. We're soft on people. But yet we do have to be aware that this is a dangerous situation. Um, and we'll come back to some of the particulars in this passage because this is some of the most, like, I would say inflammatory language we have in the book where I won't get into the specifics of it, but most scholars would say that the language is very, very specific for maybe some of the things that were taking place at that time because Jude essentially said, uh, hate the dirty underwear. Um, and essentially I think... Well, we'll get into that later. But one of the things that we have to just recognize is going up and being able to say, this is not cool. Um, This is not okay in any way. And just from a practical perspective here, I think that means that we shouldn't be the Lone Ranger in these cases, that we should take one or two along, that we have to recognize that if people are this far in to believing some of the pressures, that they're not loved, that they don't have this identity, that Jesus is twisted in this way, then it's going to take more than us. I think we have to recognize that if it's a dangerous situation, then we take others along. We try to take others into the process. Maybe we pray a whole lot for these people. Um, Certainly don't join them in their sin. Certainly make it clear. This is absolutely not something I would associate with. But yet still going after them. Still contending for the faith. Because these are the people that are in and amongst our midst. And Jude says God's grace is for them. And you are to be an agent in their lives. You are empowered by Christ to do these things, to have mercy on them, to snatch others out, and to show mercy with fear, right? That we have a faith to be contended for, not just for our identity, but also for others. Also for others. And I think the hope is that even in all this, that we would be able to see the mercy of God, the grace of God for us that we'd be able to see the grace of God more accurately. Because that's essentially the message of Jude. And it seems really harsh, seems really over the top, but this is how defensive God is over his people. The father who loves his church, when things get crept in, try to twist, pervert his message. I mean, this is his reaction. This is his reaction. And it's a reminder to us that the faith must be fought for that it's worth fighting for, that our identity and all that we have received is worth fighting for, not worth denying, and others, our friends, our family, worth fighting for as well. We've received this faith, it's been passed on to us, and we will face pressure after pressure. We will face idea after idea that tries to compete, tries to twist it, tries to sway us. And the message of Jude is going to be take that very, very seriously. Let nothing Stand between who Jesus truly is and what you think. And so as we work our way through this for the next four weeks, I imagine you will encounter some pressure in your life. I imagine you will encounter some challenges to the faith. And so from the very beginning, the book of Jude, the call is to contend, the call is to fight. But remember that you are called to this. You're called to this fight. And you are loved in the middle of it. And you are kept by Jesus. That you are not fighting this fight alone. And so because of that, let's just turn to him in praise. So would you bow your heads and pray with me. So we now turn to God and worship. 
So, Father God, uh, we just thank you uh, for being the one who has rescued us. Um, that we can be a people who get ourselves into some serious messes over and over again. And we often don't listen to your warnings. Uh, we blow right past the signs you give us because to us it seems so good. And we pause right now and we just thank you for the wake-up call that Judas. Um, as we squirm in our seats, as we listen to this language, as it seems to break you know, all of our ideas of, of what it means to just be gentle and nice, God, would you help us to just see how serious um, these issues are? Would you help us to see the great love that you have for us and just how intensely you protect your people? God, we just thank you for that. We just thank you for being a God who watches over us. We are filled with a sense of encouragement knowing that even though the world might seem scary and like there are so many pressures against us that we know that you are the one who holds us in your hand and no one can take us out. And so God, because we have been called and saved and loved, God, would you just empower us to be that agent for others as we've already prayed for. We just pray over Heather, over Josh, over many in this room, over all of those serving at Camp Halawasa that you have tasked us with this responsibility to have mercy on those who doubt, on those who are wobbling in their faith, who are not quite sure. God, would you help us to show mercy and grace Would you help us to be brave enough to save others by snatching them out of the fire? Open our eyes to see the real danger out there. That we wouldn't just sit idly by and hope people are okay, but that we would be a people who actually run towards the danger for the sake of those that you love. Because that is what you did for us. So Jesus, we thank you, first and foremost, for being the one who didn't hold anything back. That you gave it your all to save us. So now, God, we just turn to you in praise. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I'll just invite you. Would you please stand as we continue in worship?
This week, as you contend for the faith that was handed to you, would you just be reminded of God's great love described for us in John chapter 3? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so, Comrade Church, that is what he has done for you. And now, as we go forth in this place, would you just see that great love given to you and extend that to others. And so, grace and peace. Thank you for being here. Have a wonderful week. Mm-hmm.